0: Hello again, and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I am, as always, Sean Merwin, and we have a very, very special episode today, which I am going to let Teos Abadea tell us about.
1: Absolutely. We are joined today by none other than Tim Harford. And if you don't know who Tim is, he is a quite amazing chap, because he's from. That's, that's what you say, right? yeah yeah
2: well that's what you say about me that's fine
1: (laughs) fantastic uh tim is both a friend of mine and more importantly he is a world-renowned economist author and podcaster i think he began podcasting because he heard mastering dungeons i I may have that wrong uh (laughs) but we are super happy to have you here with us tim
2: oh thanks so much taos and thanks sean it's great to be on the on the podcast and uh yeah i'm excited to to get started and see what we have to talk about
1: Yeah. Well, you came uh, to our attention uh, more than usual because of the latest episode of Cautionary Tale. So we're going to talk about that episode. But for folks who don't super know you, um, tell us about what you've been doing as an economist, as an author, as a podcaster.
2: Sure. I mean, I'm basically a writer who, who writes about... Nerdy social science stuff. So, economics is what I was trained in, but uh, behavioral science, sociology, statistics, anything I can get my teeth into. And I write a column for the Financial Times. Uh, I present programs for the BBC, and uh, I've got this podcast, Cautionary Tales, which is all about things going really badly wrong. And then they're true stories. I've got act- actors. We've got a uh, sound designer, composer. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter is is in them, and Jeffrey Wright and Alan Cumming. I mean, it's, it's amazing to hear, like proper actors, cre- creating, recreating these stories from my scripts. But then I pop up in the middle and I go, well, actually, uh, this is what a cognitive psychologist would say about what went. <laughs> terribly badly wrong in that in that situation. And um, the only other thing I do is is I write books, lots and lots of books. The first book was The Undercover Economist. Uh, the most recent book was The Data Detective, which is all about trying to think clearly about numbers and how we how we sort of process and interpret and spin numbers.
1: And your books always have like nine names and then, well, I'd say four. You have you have it's the data detective uh, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. But then, it, is that the U.S. name of the book?
2: Yeah, that's, that's the U.S. name. Yeah. So, for, for tedious reasons, my American publishers and my British publishers couldn't agree on a name. So, if you're listening outside North America, the book's called How to Make the World Add-Up. But in America, Canada, and Guam, actually, <laughs> it is called The Data Detective.
1: Guam always playing strong. Yeah. Right. Um, so... Tell us a little bit about the book and what you tackle in it.
2: So the book is really what I've learned in 15 years of presenting a show for the BBC called More or Less, which I think is most obviously a fact-checking show. Politicians say stuff that's not true and we smack them down. But actually, the, the more I did that, the more I realized there's something more important going on here than just telling people, oh, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. Actually, what is true is much more important than than what's not true. And so I became very interested in the idea of using statistics, using data to discern what's true about the world. Uh, Science, social science, demography, economics, and of course, most recently, COVID. Mm -hmm. To understand what's happening when this pandemic hits us, you need the numbers, you need really good, solid numbers. And so the message of the book is... It's not just about misinformation. It's not just about politicians lying to you. It's also about trying to see the world clearly through numbers. And maybe to do that, you need to be a little bit wiser about your own biases as well. So that, that's what the book's about. It's been, it's been great fun working on it. And um, yeah, ho- hopefully by the end of reading it, people will just be a little bit more curious and, and maybe a little bit more confident in in using the numbers because we do we do lack confidence, I think. We're often told... There's no way you can make your way through this kind of cesspool of spin without help. <laughs> and actually, the sorts of questions you should be asking to make sense of, of things, they're not as complicated as you might think.
1: I think you just came up, came up with the name for my next adventure, cesspool of sin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought I said cesspool of spin, but I probably, it probably was a Freudian slip. Yeah, let's go with cesspool of sin. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd play that module. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well,
0: we're, we're into both spin and sin uh, on Mastering Dungeons, and that's fine. Uh, where did the idea for, for the podcast, the uh, Cautionary Tales podcast, come from?
2: Uh, I, th- I think I'm, I'm fascinated by things going wrong because they make good stories. Uh, and I, I wrote a book a few years ago called Adapt, which was about um, – the subtitle was Why Success Always Starts With Failure. And it's about people learning from mistakes. And I'm quite proud of the book, but I found the most interesting bits of the book, the, the, the bits that people were really engaged with, they were, were the mistakes. Like the learning from the mistakes, that's okay. But like just reading about other people's mistakes is fascinating. And there's a, as someone who's interested in storytelling, there's a, there's a real range because you can talk about real tragedy, but there's also a comedy in mistakes. And you can just have, stupid things going wrong for stupid reasons and that's fun too and as long as there's some lesson then uh you know it makes for a great story so yeah uh that I've been doing it for since late 2019 but I have to say the the producers pushkin uh they've done an amazing job in really raising the bar in in you know my ambition because I thought oh that's fine I'll write a, write a story and then I'll be in front of a microphone and I'll tell the story but Pushkin were like, no, 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 we're we're going to get some A-list actors. We're we're going to do, <laughs> we're going to do the the music. We're going to do everything, and it makes a huge difference.
1: It really does. It's amazing. Yeah. It's wonderful listening to them. Uh, by the way, Adapt is one of my favorite of your books. I it it is true. There's something about hearing how we got things wrong that's so incredibly attractive. And 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 I think that's a lot of what we do on this show with mastering D and D is to, is to look at the various ways that design can go wrong. And then what do you do at the table to kind of correct it, right? Yeah.
2: Um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's just a great way to learn. I mean, we, we're always told learn from your mistakes, which is fine. But often we're so invested in the decisions we've made. It's very, very difficult to even notice your own mistakes, let alone to fix them. Yeah. But to notice other people's mistakes, oh, that's really instructive, and it's it's a lot <laughs> less painful as well.
1: Uh, I think I think Sean and I are good at seeing our own mistakes too.
0: Oh yes, <laughs> just starting this podcast, uh, you know, <laughs> probably our biggest, but we're 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 doing fine. Plus, uh, fans always let you know about your mistakes.
1: So, oh yeah, for sure. Fans. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so the, the specific episode uh, of the podcast that we want to we'll start on is the uh, most recent one that talks about the satanic panic demonizing
1: dungeons and dragons.
0: So, so as a player uh, of role-playing games and dungeons and dragons, were you specifically looking for a way to bring gaming into, into the, the, uh, the podcast?
2: Yeah. Well, I, I was initially really interested by something that was basically a totally different question that I think is a really interesting question, but not a good story which is um, did they have dungeons and dragons in ancient Rome to which the answer seems to be, no, we don't think so. And then why not? Like why does some, because it's not as an innovation, like you don't, you need pencil and paper. You don't even really need a randomizer But we've had kind of dice and similar randomizers for a long time. So why didn't somebody invent role-playing games 2000 years ago? So, that's what drew me in. I thought, that's such an interesting question. But the more I looked at it and I read these histories of D&D, the more I thought, it's a great question, but it's not a great story. And, then, and I was just drawn to the story that I think a lot of people will know a little bit about. But not many people know all the details, which is of, of a, a, a boy who, who went missing and Dungeons and Dragons got the blame. And, and all the details and the twists of that story. We just once, I started encountering it, I, I went deep because it's 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 a sad story. It's also an amazing and fascinating one.
1: It is because there's so many different actors, and 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 the imagine it captures our imagination the way this this kid goes missing, Dallas Egbert, in 1979, in these sewers under the university is where you know we imagine that he's gone off to. And what yeah. a better place to go missing when you're a Dungeons & Dragons player, right?
2: Yeah. So this was the thing, that the, the rumor on the campus was that he was a D&D player and that like lots of D&D players, he played in, well, you said Sewer's tails. so they're actually the steam tunnels, but they were, <laughs> they were just, so when I hear the word steam tunnel, I think of like a, a big metal pipe and there's steam inside it and you're inside the pipe with the steam um, and the way they're described in uh, one first-hand account, uh, William Deere's book, *The Dungeon Master*, it, it does make it sound like they're an absolute death trap. you could just have your 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 face blasted off by an, a vent of steam at any moment, and an incredibly dangerous places. Actually, if you if you Google steam tunnels, you get directed to the Wikipedia entry for utility corridors, <laughs> and you know. Dallas got lost in the utility corridors. It's just not nearly as exciting <laughs> a description. But yeah, it's basically just some, you know, you know, some, some, some passages around the campus yeah. uh, that have hot pipes in them. And yeah, it did seem that people went down there and did some LARPing, some live action, but probably. Uh, <laughs> but the, then the question is, well, does that, does that have anything at all to do with Dallas going missing? Right. Uh, and I, I had heard this story. I think we'd all heard this story. Anybody who, who played games in the 1980s did so against the backdrop of this story. Um, but there's very little discussion of what actually happened. We, we instead get the, the narrative from Mazes and Monsters, the Tom Hanks movie, <laughs> which a lot of people think must be like, oh, that's kind of what happened to, to Dallas Egbert. It's nothing at all like what happened to Dallas Egbert. In, in Mazes and Monsters, Tom Hanks just loses his mind. Um, And that was supposed to be what had happened to Dallas, but uh, the real story is very different.
1: I like that the private investigator that the family hires uh, decides to look into the fact that the kid played D&D, and he hires a dungeon master to run D&D for him, pays him a a big sum for the time, and um, more than most DMs get paid today. Uh, And the conclusion that the private investigator William Deere has basically like, this is too much fun. Something must be wrong with this,
2: right? Yeah. It's, it's incredible. If you read William Deere's book, the dungeon master, which I, um, so I hesitate to recommend. It's actually a really fun book to read, but I think, uh, I don't want to deliver too many spoilers, but William Deere is a problematic figure in this. (laughs) His whole role is very problematic. And I think he's something of an unreliable narrator as well. But the book is really fun to read. Um, but the most fun bit in the whole, the whole book is William Deere describing the adventure he has when he plays Dungeons and Dragons. And we just go in. It's like the play within a play. And he describes it incredibly vividly. It sounds like a really great game. It <laughs> sounds like he he understood the game really quickly. He totally got into it. And he's... And I was reading this and going, "Yeah, this has, This is a great game. He's, there's double crosses. They get taken prisoner. They they bluff their way out. They're completely overpowered, but like a great bit of inspired role playing, and they 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 get out of this terrible situation. And then the way he describes it, he's sort of. It's almost like he wakes up and he's been he's been hypnotized. He's been in some sort of trance, and like the it's got dark and the, the the dungeon masters left and I think he, he barely noticed the guy leaving and you think, wow, like I wish all my games were this good, <laughs> but, but yeah, at that point from, from he switches from, there's this really weird thing and and maybe there's like these really strange dares going on in this very, very dangerous place. He flips to oh it's just some people with dice around a table but it's so amazing maybe that's the problem <laughs> maybe it's yeah, it's too good he lost his mind because the game was too good i mean at this point you're really clutching at straws i think that's probably not the reason why dallas egbert went missing but yeah, yeah it, it is he's clearly hooked he clearly loves the game that's so
1: funny i mean that he named his book the dungeon master right what a it says so much in so
2: many levels yeah. I mean, the, 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 the end of the book, he's saying, um, Oh, you know, it's such a shame that everybody got really in, into this Dungeons and Dragons hypothesis. It's like, well, okay. First of all, it was your idea. William. And second, <laughs> when you, when you published a book years after the event, you still called it the Dungeon Master. <laughs> so, That's okay.
0: So could you tell us a little bit about, uh, William Deere sort of what his, what his take or what his, uh, background was before he took this case and and how he sort of wrote it to prominence
2: okay so the first thing you have to understand about william Deere is that when he comes in uh, in the cautionary tales the the composer pascal has composed this fantastic 1970s kind of f- funk detective <laughs> track <laughs> every time deer's on stage there's this kind of you know the synth is playing. It's, it's it's just it just makes me smile every time. So yeah, William Dear, he's like he's got a private plane, he's got um he's massive jewelry. He's a he's a fast talking Texan. Uh, he's got a whole team of, of Vietnam vet, and he's got spy microphones, and he's it's I mean, he's got this amazing operation. At least he describes it as being this amazing operation, and we're left to figure out how amazing it really is. Um, But he's this really larger-than-life character who, um, uh, since writing The Dungeon Master, has written books about O.J. I think he wrote a book, O.J. Simpson is Innocent and I Can Prove It. But I think he also wrote a book that said that O.J. was guilty. I may have misremembered that. He presented a show called Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction, Um, which I haven't seen. Uh, It's a Fox TV show. I'm guessing at the end he concludes, oh, it's actually fiction. Um, having basically bigged up the aliens throughout, t- that would be on brand for him. And he's still alive. He's still going strong. Um, he <laughs> apparently has a career as a detective, but he seems to be much more of like a, a, a TV personality. You know how these things are.
1: Yeah, he should open up Hoffa's vault or something like that, right? Right, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> I, I love, and I want to know, so who did the voiceover? There is, a, at one point when William Deere, the, you're covering how the investigator is looking into D&D and learning about it. And there's this, a woman a female voice that says this what i is my favorite quote from the show which says i don't know how to play it but i do know that you can't play if you're a dumbass <laughs> who did you get think, to do that voiceover
2: i i think that's uh uh Masaya monroe i think uh <laughs> so uh, it the weird thing about producing the podcast in lockdown conditions is that like I don't think I've met any of the actors. I uh-huh. certainly haven't met most of them and it, so I'm weirdly disconnected, so I write the scripts and there's a process there's an editorial process we we do we do reads, we do we do edits, we fix everything and then I, I edit this and I read the script in a studio, and my producer's just kind of miles away on zoom, and then the recording gets sent to my producer. And then um, the actors are then brought in later, and I'm not there. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I'd been there when Helena Bonham Carter was Florence yeah. Nightingale. Nightingale. I wish I'd been there when Jeffrey Wright was Martin Luther King. And Jeffrey Wright is incredible as Martin Luther King. Yeah, this is obviously um, Nightingale and Martin Luther King are not in the D and D episode. Um, <laughs> I mean, but why not, yeah, right? But, yeah. But, a different um, game, maybe. Yeah, but no, the, actors are, the actors are terrific. And we're asking a lot of them because the Cautionary Tales, there were 14 in this series and um, you, you just go all over the world. They we're at all sorts of different actors, all sorts of different roles and, and um, they're, they're doing a lot. They're doing an amazing job.
1: That's fantastic. So I want to ask about because this, 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 the satanic panic is something we, we do indeed talk about all the time. It comes up all the time. Like I listen to the official D&D podcast and one of the co-hosts often talks about how they were prohibited from playing. Um, guests will say it all the time that, you know, well, I couldn't get started when, when I wanted to because of this. Uh, and in fact, I was talking to my wife today and she was mentioning that her brother, I didn't know this, her brother uh, she recalls hearing a conversation with her parents discussing her brother and how he he shouldn't be allowed to play D and D because of the demonic influence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It really yeah. permeated American culture and, and and I guess in the UK as well. Did you hear that often? Yeah,
2: it did. I mean, the evangelical uh, Christianity is not as strong in the UK, but it uh, there, there, it does exist. And uh, I ha- was asked by a senior teacher at my school who to explain what this game was and he was he was worried that it was opening me to demonic influences but to his credit we sat down and I I just explained how it worked for an hour and he said well it sounds okay it sounds fine and so you know he let us play but I I did have to have that conversation which is interesting because I mean if I'd been proposing setting up the badminton club or something (laughs) right I don't think that would have been uh, a topic of conversation, uh, and of course I mean there have been panics about satanic influences in you know, in Harry Potter and in heavy metal and you know, so it 's not just role playing but I think there is something so so to me uh, role playing games are almost uniquely benevolent uh, compared to uh, i mean heavy metal I think is harmless, but i wouldn 't think you would describe heavy metal as as benign. Right, like, but but role playing games is that you, this is actually what we want our kids to be doing. It's creative, it's it's you know, it requires literacy and it requires numeracy and it requires cooperation. It's everything that we keep saying we want our children to be, yeah. and yet people lost their minds about this game. Why? And, and I think there... it's just that it's so mysterious, people just don't, didn't get it, they didn't understand what it having,
0: was. Having grown up. Exactly during the the Satanic Panic of of D anD D, I cannot fathom the situation I'm in now, where coworkers of mine who are you know middle aged folks who are probably looking at the kids who played D anD D strangely back in the eighties and nineties, asking me, "My child wants to play. How do I get started?" Yeah, and yeah that 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 one eighty that we've seen is, is amazing, and I've I get angry when people ask me about the satanic panic or I used to, because I had to so much defend the game and nothing you said would get through because it is, as you say, so hard to explain what the game is without actually sitting down and playing it. And mazes and monsters is one of the things I think that triggered the satanic panic of D and D. I think it might've been, People may have heard about it, but when it's on CBS at 8 p.m., I remember watching it. I remember the channel it was on because we only got one channel, and it was CBS. <laughs> so I know exactly what channel it was on. And I got through watching it and went, my life is going to be hell for the next 20 years because people are seeing this right now.
2: Yeah, but it, it's an interesting question, though. It may be – there is an argument that role-playing was really made by – um the panic over the, the disappearance of Dallas Egbert, and, the, and then Mazes and Monsters. So it was, it was also in ET, same year that Mazes and Monsters came out, which is I, I think 1982. So this is three years after Dallas disappeared, um, and it, it was featured in ET as this game that uh, that the older kid—I can't remember the protagonist of ET now—but his. You know, he's the younger brother oh, and his yeah. older brother and his older brother's friends. They're all playing Dungeons and & Dragons. And I think it was, um, I mean, it's, it's horrible to, to, to think it because for Dallas Egbert, this was a, just a, a horrible experience that he went through um, and for his family. But uh, the whole kind of panic over his disappearance and the fact Dungeons & Dragons was blamed arguably put D&D on the map. Certainly that's what TSR said that they, they could barely keep up with demand after all this controversy over the game. Because it just gave, I guess it's the cliche, there's no such thing as bad publicity.
0: Right, um,
1: right. But it did, yeah.
2: did lead to these very awkward conversations.
1: Yeah. Gygax writes in a number of Dungeon or Dragon Magazine articles, he, he talks about how this is, uh they're taking, you know, he sort of says, we're taking this seriously and and trying to explain to everybody, but also... Wow, our sales are through the roof, right? He he says this at many points that, and and the sales in the '80s were the highest ever, and it uh, it had a brand recognition and a permeation of the consciousness that was sort of amazing and and sometimes hard to figure out because you've got a cartoon that's on TV for Dungeons and Dragons, and then you also have this satanic panic going on, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. At the same time, it is it is very odd. It's very odd. What do you I, think? I remember the the. The conversation I had with my parents—I don't think they were at all worried that I was doing role playing. But I used to do um, Tunnels and Trolls, which mm-hmm. was one of the very first D and D clones, as as you may well know. Uh, well, not quite a clone; it was a, it was a spin off. It was like, yeah. Now, well, now role playing's been invented. We're going to do it a bit differently. And, but one of the things about Tunnels and Trolls was it had loads and loads of solo adventures. So you could go, you could just play by yourself, which I think as a as a teenager, pre-internet, that was the fate of a lot of role players anyway. Um, but my father realized that uh, these very elegantly illustrated uh, books, Liz Danforth did the art in a lot of that, brilliant artist. Um, a lot of naked ladies, though, a lot <laughs> of naked ladies yes. in Tells and False and I think there were occasionally in the D&D books as well. Um, they didn't have to be there, right? And I think these days we would say that's probably – um, for a number of reasons, that's not something we really want in our role-playing supplements. Uh, right. my, my dad sort of caught sight of this, and there were there were various kind of things in these solo adventures where you'd end up, uh, your character would have a, you know a, a should we say an adult encounter, <laughs> and he my dad was not delighted that his twelve year old son was reading this stuff, but but right. he, he was like okay fine whatever you're, if this is what you're reading this is what you're reading it could be worse.
1: You in your podcast you cover the idea of. Um how D&D role-playing games, they provide a breakdown between reality and fantasy. And this is yeah. sort of what's being accused of being the problem. But then you compare it to movies and how w- we can get lost in that breakdown.
2: Is it maybe yeah.
1: that, that that has, as a concept of something that's now more welcome?
2: It's, well, I think it was partly just a question of double standards. So William Deere, said that maybe dallas egbert's mind had slipped through the the fragile barrier between reality and fantasy so you have to say is it that fragile i'm not sure it's that <laughs> fragile really but okay um so he basically he he said maybe maybe dallas thinks he's a wizard this is the the accusation maybe maybe dallas thinks he's a wizard maybe he's lost his mind um but the the point is that actually all of this sort of art so you watch a movie when you when you watch a Marvel movie, you, you really think that Thanos is trying to destroy half the universe. And you really think that Captain America is, you know, and he can pick up the he can pick up the hammer just like Thor, because he's he's pure of heart, like Thor is. Like, you don't think to yourself, that's just Chris Evans, he's just an actor. And uh, that hammer, it's probably made of polystyrene and anybody could pick it up. And it's just been put there by a stage. You don't think any of these things, of course you don't think these things. So has the, has the barrier between reality and fantasy broken down? Like, I don't watch horror movies because they scare me. Some movies make me cry. You could objectively say, Tim's weird. He's crying. And it's, it's, ju- it's actually just actors. It's all pretend. He doesn't understand. Cinema Paradiso, it's not real. It's just a made-up story. But of course we all understand that there's that suspension of disbelief. So to me to say that you could argue, okay, so you have to you have to get into character rather than appreciate other characters in a role-playing game. But I think it's just double standards. I think it's just unfair. We're we're saying it's weird when you're creating a fantasy, but when you're suspending your disbelief to enter into somebody else's fantasy, Mm. that's, that's regarded as being totally fine.
1: I wonder, I tend to think that it's something has changed, because of how many devices we have in our in our world that it feels like a lot of what we do when we're interacting with devices whether it's youtube or a video game or whatever it's sort of this uh it's a very kind of viewership type activity even if we're in a video game a lot of times and that maybe now there's a sudden realization of oh wow how can we get kids to be and people to be interacting in a way that more like we used to uh, because certainly for me in, in when i run D D for uh, my son and his friends all their parents are beyond happy they're ecstatic yeah. that their kids are involved in dungeons and dragons because i think they understand the way i what i hear from them is they they understand that this is a different way of behaving with one another than they normally are engaged in right does that make sense yeah
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I discussed this a bit in in the Cautionary Tales podcast. Uh, I I talk about this, um, you know, this famous piece of work uh, by Neil Postman, "Amusing Ourselves to Death," where Postman basically talks about how different forms of media are consumed in different ways and demand different sorts of argument or different. There's just I mean, this is all pre-Twitter, but there's you know there's a certain kind of thing you can do on Twitter. There's a certain kind of thing that Twitter demands. That and there's certain things you could, just can't do on Twitter. Similarly, there are certain sorts of things you can do on TV, even TV that pretends to be serious. It's often fundamentally unserious. Um, and you know he says the medium is the metaphor. He's sort of channeling his teacher, Marshall McLuhan, and Reading that, I thought, well, okay. so what's the the metaphor of the role-playing medium? What does it demand? What what does it require to to be a good role-playing game? And it it demands collaboration. Uh, Sure, you can play solo, but most role-playing is is about collaboration. Um, It demands creativity. At the very least, it demands imagination. But, But routinely, it demands creativity as well. You produce your own scenarios. You create your own character uh it's not just pre-generated stuff um and and this is just absolutely it's hardwired into the game i think we often take it for granted just you wouldn't i mean to go back to marvel you wouldn't generally watch a marvel movie and walk out of the cinema and go that was great i'm going to write my own script for a marvel (laughs) movie now and uh i'm going to make up my own superheroes and it would just i mean some people would do that but it wouldn't be the standard response but for for role playing, it's absolutely standard. I'm going to hack my own rules. I'm going to create my own adventure. I'm going to. I'm just going to make all this stuff up. It's absolutely yeah. fundamental, and it's so fundamental. I think it's easy for us to lose sight of it. But it's really. I mean, it's a miracle, really, that this is what the hobby demands of us, and that we so willingly produce it. And 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 all gamers so willingly produce it. But,
0: Are we to the point where our media has sort of sanctified? user created content to the point where it's second nature as opposed to maybe back in the seventies and eighties when we trusted everything to be made by the creative minds and anyone else was just an amateur and it so it was weird to to you know to act if you were not an actor. Yeah. It was weird to write if you weren't a writer.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I suppose so we used to, we've had different relationships with different art forms over the, over the centuries. So before you had recorded music, it'd be much more common for people to play a musical instrument because if you wanted music, that's how you get music. You make your own music. Uh, so I guess there's, as there's a trend towards mass media in general, there's this push away from user-created stuff. Uh, why would I play the piano when I could just play uh, a CD of Oscar Peterson, or I could uh you know, I could stream Keith Jarrett. Why would I play my own piano? Um and so that you get you get that pushback against against user created content. And then there was a fad for user-created content maybe 15 years ago. I was like, everything's gonna be every our newspapers are all gonna be kind of it's all in the comment section. That's where all the all the joy is. And basically people looked at Wikipedia and then <laughs> Basically assumed that everything would be like Wikipedia. It'll be great because user-created content is great, and and very little user-created content is great. There are there are some exceptions, but a lot of it isn't. Um, but but for for role playing, it's just it's absolutely standard, and it's not yeah. like we're saying, oh, um, you know, TSR should just get, you know, a- any gamer should just kind of send their scenario ideas. And, and and it's not TSR Wizards of the Coast these days, yeah. of course, but Wizards will just kind of publish everything. I mean, we're not we're not saying that. We're just saying that, obviously, as a matter of course, in a way that doesn't even need to be discussed, because it's so obvious, of course you'll create your own adventures. And it doesn't need to be for anybody else. Like, it's fine if it's just for you and your group. Um, there's no external validity, you know, validation needed. Like, it doesn't even need to be written down. Uh, it think- still counts, and it's still... A joyful and creative experience
1: my great terror is that someday that might change because because it hasn't right like that has been true since the very beginning that it it is this idea of the scenario and the creativity of the dm and the players interacting with that and and everything goes in in unpredictable directions because we're all creating it together and i love that and my biggest fear is that somehow something will come along to change that
2: yeah i think it won't so my th- my th- uh, here's my theory. I hope I hope I'm right. Uh, I think it won't because um, there's something fundamentally chaotic about a good role-playing game. Uh, if if you get a good pre-generated adventure and good pre-generated characters, and you play it, and it just comes out exactly as the pre-generated adventure suggests it would, probably something went wrong with that game. <laughs> Like there's some, that's something weird. That's not how it's supposed to be. Right. Uh, any more than like if you show up for dinner with some friends and, uh, the host has basically got like that Monty Python sketch, got all the conversations on three by five inch cards. And it's like, (laughs) here, here are the conversations we're going to have. We can't have any other conversations. Like nobody, that's not going to catch on. Right. That's, that's not, that's not fun. And I think that that's why, um, that's why people will keep creating. They will keep hacking systems about. They'll keep creating their own characters. They'll keep inventing their own stuff. Because even if you're playing with everything pre-generated, and even if the pre-generated stuff is the highest possible quality, it's going to go off the rails pretty quickly. It has to. Otherwise, it's not role-playing. That's what I think. Anyway, <laughs> am I wrong? Tell me I it. No, I, I recall. I, I don't,
0: yeah, I don't think you're wrong. The only fear I have is how... The the audience, when you introduce an audience to a game, and especially when you allow allow audience interaction, Mm -hmm. does that mass of people watching and do their desires, whether it's through a chat that's going on at the same time or any other feedback that they might have with the game, sort of push the game in a direction that maybe the players don't even want, but they know that that audience is watching?
2: that's a really interesting question and, and I don't have a good answer. I don't actually watch any of this, like, you know, this live play stuff on YouTube. I, I still can't quite believe it is a thing, but I mean, I'm sure if I watched it, I would go, Oh, I see why people like this. This is really great fun. But for me, it's, I don't, I don't fully understand. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm revealing my age here. Like I'm a pro I'm a Gen Xer. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I was a teenager in the 1980s. It seems strange. If people want to do it, that's great. I don't fully understand it. But I guess the question, Sean, is, um, is how popular is that as a way of, of engaging with the game versus just playing your own game? I know these, these YouTube channels and Twitch channels are pretty popular, but I mean, is it, are we now like 80% of the people who play D&D aren't actually playing D&D? They're just watching? Surely it can't be like that.
1: Well, and I think that's where we get into this data Side of things, in that I'm not sure we know. And one thing that we see a lot in, in on the RPG side is that there are uh, vocal minorities that are on places like Twitter, yeah, really small but loud groups that will say this is what the game is, right? Yeah. Um, but then that's what Twitter's when, for. That's what Twitter's for. When you go to you know an average gaming store somewhere in the middle of the U.S. or I've gone to ones in Europe as well. It's not really particularly different. And when you sit down with folks that are at this store, uh, they don't follow anything online, right? That's 90% of the time I'd say, if I speak to someone and I say, hey, did you hear about the new blah, blah, blah product? Uh, is it on the shelf? No, they're talking about it. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't go online for that. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a real disconnect, right? And so similarly, I wonder to what extent we really are seeing what percentage of people are vicariously enjoying D and D versus playing it versus reading it versus
0: anything else. Right. When I, when I uh, started this class at the local college, uh, I took 20 students for, uh, you know, writing for role-playing games. That's the name of the class. And I was curious what it was going to be like, what their experience were. And it's almost 50 50 of students who have played before, uh, and students who are interested because they have watched but never played, and uh, obviously this is a young you know younger generation of twenty, some and younger, so it, it's it's a new dynamic that we yeah. growing up as just kids playing games, never ever thought would happen in a million years, and here we are yeah. watching the paradigm shift
2: although I suppose i mean one thing I used to do apart from as we've already discussed, I used to play a lot of solo games, which. You could reasonably say, "Look, going through uh, death trap equalizer or you know, a classic Tunnels and trolls solo scenario isn't it's not really the same thing as playing with your friends. There's not the same um, role assumption. It's much more of a mechanical thing. Um, but the other thing I used to do, and I think I, I really don't think I'm alone here. please tell me I'm not alone here, <laughs> is I just used to buy the books and read the books and imagine what it would be like playing a game. And then ne- you never play that game, never play sure. that scenario, never play that, you know, I used to play a lot of GURPS, never play that GURPS supplement. Just read and enjoy the books and, yeah. and kind of think about it. Um, and I suppose maybe that's, the, that's somewhat parallel to the vicarious experience of watching other people play on YouTube. You're kind of, you're contemplating the game in a, in a more passive way, but, uh, but it's not completely passive.
1: So I have to say, I would actually take normal Dungeons & Dragons modules and I would solo run through them, right? Whenever I couldn't get a group together, I would just, I would have, I don't know how many characters, I would would do fewer characters but higher level and I would run through the classic adventures just to to know them, right? Because I wanted, it was that next level, I'd read them, uh, but what if I played them? And so I'd often get a new one before I read it and I would cover up with a piece of paper, and go through it as if it was made for solo play, and I would try to be as you know fair as possible as a kid. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, somehow I ended up with a lot of treasure and few deaths.
2: Yeah, that, I, I used to find that with the TNT uh, solo scenarios as well. Yeah. The old, the old five finger bookmark technique. Yeah, uh, that <laughs> happens. It was
1: like a choose your own adventure, right? It's very fun, but uh, oh, it's fascinating. The, the role playing game industry is is forever fascinating me because of of how hard it is i think to to understand what the audience is is doing on a grand scale
2: yeah yeah and you, you you've got this you know the, you have very particular slices through uh, of you know of basically personal experience through the hobby so for me the the I don't play much D&D, as I say, I, I tend to play GURPS, but mostly with my group, we tend to play games that we've made up ourselves. Mm-hmm. There are several game designers in the group, and they'll just completely make up their own rules, everything, the setting, the whole thing. And that's just, that's just kind of what you would do. It just seems totally normal to us. Um, and I tend to listen to podcasts from people who are of that school, so they tend to be playing Uh, you know indie games new wave games or just talking about making up their own games Um, but I know that there's of course this huge really vital and really important part of the hobby which is just centered around Dungeons and Dragons which is this huge amount of resources It's, it's, it's the still the biggest brand name and just a great way to get people into the hobby but I realized that as a committed role player you know, I've got very little idea what D and D is these days. Like, I'm assuming it's kind. It of, must be similar to like the days of the red box, you know, with the with the Larry Elmore art <laughs> on the front. It's probably just the same. I'm guessing. Do you Do you guys still chalk your dice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no, I haven't done that in a while. Although you should I, see, uh, uh, you should yeah.
1: see what what people do for dice. They pay. I mean, the kickstarters for dice these days are millions of dollars. It's, it's sort of absurd. Uh, In fact, this is a whole aspect that I wish an economist would come and solve for me in my brain, uh, because I don't understand the economy of our industry. Like we, you know, adventures are still very close to the same price they used to be back when we got them at like KB Toys or, you know, any of these old shops that used to be around in the 80s. But Dice can now be 50, $100 for a set in some kind of premium, beautiful configuration and a dragon miniature might sell for
2: $400. Yeah. Well, I suppose the the, the challenge of monetizing the hobby is always a tricky one, right? Yeah. Because the fundamental problem, and this goes, I mean, Gygax and, and TSR were struggling with this from the, the mid-1970s. You, you tell people how to play the game, and then you, they buy one rule set off you, and that's it and then very quickly they don't even need to buy that right because they could right. because ken st andre invented tunnels and trolls and he's like oh i see how you do it i can just make this stuff up and the, so the the revenue stream like what what is the product that you actually sell to these people once the kind of the genie is out of the bottle of like there's this wonderful way to play a game it's a new kind of game it, you know Gygax and Arneson and David Wesley invented, and we talk a little bit about that moment of invention in in the Caution house podcast um who who who, you know, who needs to buy anything like you've got Tim harford and his and his friends and they're just they're just making their own games for free like how do so yeah. it's understandable i guess that a lot of the um the attention then shifts to supplements and and gear like how how do we sell the gear? I mean, this is a basic idea all the way back in my first book, The Undercover Economist, is, uh, okay, if your basic product is is priced to reach everybody, how do you find some way of targeting the people with more money than cents? Like, uh, okay, people only want to pay a dollar for a coffee. Um, how do I find the people who will pay $6 for a coffee and charge them $6? Like, what's the, what's the trick? And there are various ways you do this. And I guess the same thing with gaming. Like It's a fundamentally incredibly inexpensive way to have a tremendous amount of fun for a very, very long time. Okay, but there's somebody out there who'll, who'll give me $20 for premium dice. So let's, let's reach them. Uh, but the Kickstarter thing is fascinating too. I mean, that's a whole new world. So, so Teos, yeah. you're, you're getting into Kickstarter now. Or maybe you're an old hand.
1: No, well, I'm, I'm going to be launching uh, one soon. But, but we see there again, there are people and entities who understand Kickstarter and, and then there are those who, who are just using it and, and these mortal people, of which I'm unfortunately a member of, uh, it's exceedingly difficult to figure out how to cross that barrier into success and, and you'll see this, you'll see a Kickstarter for a supplement and you go, oh yeah, this is cool, everybody will want this and it does okay and then you see the next one, you're like, well, that's like that other one but not as good. Oh, it's selling millions of copies yeah you know, it's, it's raising yeah. hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars how is you know what has happened and and that's the thing is that there you know it it's yeah it's so and somebody's challenging. pushing
2: it somewhere somebody somebody got on some podcast or somebody yeah there's yeah. but it, but it's it's hard to know behind the scenes what's going on um yeah. uh, please don't read chapter 5 of the data detective because it will uh <laughs> it, it will demoralize you uh, I haven't I gotten about, to that
1: one yet, safely.
2: Well, I talk about Kickstarter and I talk about the the thing about Kickstarter is like every product you've ever heard on Kick uh, you've ever heard of on Kickstarter has just gone crazy because and that's why you've heard of them. You heard of them because they went crazy. Like the the, the you know the watch and then the cooler and all of this stuff. Right. Um, but I talk about this website called Kickended which is kind of an art project. It's created by a guy called Silvio Larusso. And Kickended is just you just click, and every time you click, it just pulls another uh, campaign from Kickstarter that raised zero. <laughs> and, like, these are people who couldn't persuade their own family to kick in a single cent. And, um, and there's, there are loads of them out there, but we never, never see them. They're just, you don't see sure. them because if anybody had ever seen them, they would have made, raised more than zero dollars. So um I, I, you know, I'm hoping Teos that, that <laughs> you're not going to end up. Me too. Kick ended. I have confidence in you. I, think I i promise Teos,
0: I will back your Kickstarter. I, I will. I think I'm going
1: to have two sales. I, I'm feeling okay. good about that part. That, that's okay. Good. Tim, okay. he doesn't
2: need our pity. <laughs> he can do it without. <laughs> no, us. I probably do need that. But, uh, <laughs> but 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 it's a
1: fascinating thing. And, and Sean and I talk about this a lot on the show. We talk about uh how much authors are paid. Uh, because there is that kind of crazy thing where you'll see a Kickstarter where like someone pays absurd amounts for dice, but almost nothing is paid to an author to write an adventure, right? And just there's so many things in this industry that don't at first make sense when you just look at them at the surface level or even dig in some layers down.
2: Yeah, I guess it's partly part of the problem is is that all creative types are systematically underrated and undervalued except at the you know the very pinnacle of the pyramid. But the other thing is just that people will will do this for free because it's fun. It's true. And uh, if you've got a a vast pool of talented people, imaginative people who want to do it for nothing, well, they don't want to do it for nothing, but they're happy to do it for nothing. They'll just do it. They'll put it out there. Um, I mean, I just downloaded just this afternoon for for a possible one-off, downloaded Lady Blackbird. Mm -hmm. So Lady Blackbird... Um I just heard that it's this great game for a one-off and um no spoilers please because I haven't I haven't looked through it yet. But it's free. It's just like it's yeah, just it's a great. PDF online. Boom. Daniel, so yeah. how does that work? And I I'm told it's a masterpiece. So it's a free masterpiece. It's, it feels somehow unfair, but at the same time it's a wonderful thing.
1: Well, and I think the reason you find some games like Lady Blackbird as free is because the creators are usually experienced enough to know that they can't really offer this as a product, and really, you know, cover it to to the point where it's on a shelf in a gaming store, right? Like it, it's too hard to get there, and yeah. so it's better off as a promotional vehicle towards the work they do.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's it. You're doing it for the exposure—that's what they always say. I,
1: I guess because I mean, it's I, I see a lot of you know good creators who will create an RPG. And even put some good polish into it and to make it like Lady Blackbird looks nice, and but yeah, you can yeah. go for free.
2: I suppose we should look on the positive side. Isn't it terrific that we have these resources as gamers that are available yeah. to us as, as labors of love? I mean, it's, it's unfair for people who you deserve to be paid for this stuff, but you no, know, it, it is a blessing for the rest of us.
1: And more than ever, right? I mean, it, Dallas Egbert didn't just have to create, uh, you know, figure out how to play D&D, but also didn't have the resources that we have today for so many things uh, like mental health or any number of of situations, right? Like it's, it really is a different world.
2: Yeah, but well, he was isolated in, in many ways and mental health is still clearly a huge problem for a lot of students. But uh, I did feel... As I slowly got to know or got a sense of what he'd gone through and what he was struggling with, a lot of that would have been a lot easier today. His sexuality, for example, Mm -hmm. was a big issue for him. And I think it would have been less of an issue uh, today. It's still perhaps a problem, but uh, not nearly as much of an obstacle, not nearly as isolating as it was for him in the late 70s. Yeah.
1: So what uh, What do you have any plans for future topics on the podcast or in books that will touch on gaming?
2: Uh, there is another uh, gaming episode later in the series. It talks about a game. Well, I mean, I, I'm seeing you on the video, Teos, Dancing for Joy, but you may not be dancing for joy when I tell you what the game is. It's called Monopoly. You may have heard of it, <laughs> uh, but it's about uh, it, it's a mystery story. Who who really invented Monopoly and yeah. who, who gets credit for, for, for this sort of thing? And uh, there's, a, there's a, a wonderful book called The Monopolists by Mary Pilon about this, um, which is particularly about a more recent court case about who owns Monopoly, but she goes way back to the history of this game. But I also look at some of the economic uh, research uh, by an economist called Lisa Cook, who studied what she calls the pink and black gap in innovation. So uh, women and minorities uh, have, you know, fewer patents, fewer jobs in innovation. Why? Where's the? Where does the problem lie? Is it in, is it in the education system? Is it in uh, employment? Is it in the patent system itself? And so just through the medium of this I- the incredible person who who really invented Monopoly, uh, who, who will be played by Helena Bottom Carter, by the way, a woman called <laughs> awesome. Liz McGee. Uh, I- I'm looking forward to hearing that performance. It's going to be fantastic. Um, her story and how she created this game and what this game was really about um, becomes a way to get into this what might otherwise be quite a dry topic of uh, who gets credit in our society for coming up with, with new ideas and who gets shoved to one side.
1: That's great. I look forward to that. My uh, my kids, despite having access to a plethora of amazing board games, somehow when a friend comes over, they pick Monopoly.
2: It's. I would have thought you would have taught them better, Taos, but...
1: I have tried. So, I have so I tried in two, so many ways, and it just. I've got two theories about
2: two theories about monopoly. Why why people still play it? The the obvious thing is just the the sunk costs. Like you want to play, you don't want to have to explain a game, so um, people go for monopoly because they don't have to explain it. But the other thing is one thing I think monopoly has got that a lot of games don't have is uh, it does have these moments of jeopardy. Where you're rolling the dice, and you know that certain numbers are are going to be amazing for you, and certain numbers are going to be a disaster for you, mm-hmm. and it's that excitement, like like spinning the roulette wheel, like to, like uh, you know looking at the cards uh, in poker, the showdown. It's got that sort of moment of adrenaline, which uh, I think a good, a good board game should have, but, um, but not all of them do. So I think that's why people are still playing, despite the fact that it's clearly a profoundly flawed game.
0: Right, right. I used yeah. to think for that it was just because you got to handle money. <laughs> but now you know, $500 can barely get you anything. So I think that's sort of lost a little luster.
2: No, it uh, could, could be. I mean, the, fun, the funny thing about, so w- one of the other things about Monopoly, as I describe in The cautionary Tale, is so Lizzie McGee is this amazing woman, but the the version of Monopoly she created needed to be shaped and improved. And the guy who finally got the credit for that didn't do anything except uh, commission a good graphic designer. Um, but there were other people in between who did a lot to make it a more interesting game. And that process of, of sort of community improvement is, is important. But ironically, I think since Monopoly was published, commu- the community has been steadily making it worse, so, you know, these, these rules, we're kind of going off topic here, but like, like the free parking rule, for example, uh-huh. the free parking rule just puts more and more, which is, is not in the original rules, it's, you know, the, the various ways of getting more, it gets more cash into the game. And if there's more cash in the game, A, there's less strategy and more randomness because you can't, a cash squeeze is an important part of the decision-making and B, the game just lasts longer. So the basic problem with Monopoly, which is it never ends, gets yeah. worse. The other thing is the original rules, uh, when a property comes up, you have to either buy, buy it or it goes for auction. Uh, those, are the, those are the original rules, but a lot of people play, play it, so you can just turn it down. And so it's just, again, um, the original rules force more action, uh, and the, the way that people tend to play the house rules uh, just slow the game down and make it even more interminable.
1: <laughs> the solution is, of course, to bring a role-playing component and overlay that onto Monopoly, right? So that you, the shoe and the thimble, can interact <laughs> as you go on your buying spree adventure as monopolists.
0: I'm trying to imagine role-playing a <laughs> shoe who is rich enough to buy Boardwalk.
2: But so, have you guys ever played Talisman? Yeah. Uh, like, yes, yes, yeah? Tal- yeah.
0: Talisman is the Monopoly of fantasy it's board. True. Games.
2: That's that's the, and it's similarly interminable. But yeah, that's the game you're looking for, Teos.
0: That's it. I'll just play more Talisman. Uh, just turn Talisman into a drinking game, and <laughs> you won't even notice how bad it is yeah. after about the talking. first fifteen minutes. That is a solution to many bad games. <laughs> that's, that's true. So, as as an economist, uh, do you, when you play a game, especially a role playing game? Do you focus more on the rules? Do you focus more on the role playing? Is the role playing a way to stop thinking about rules and and mechanics for for a bit or is it does it all a big jumble uh when you play?
2: So so for for me uh, the rules are like the they're like the 10 bulls of zen. They should disappear. You know when you're at the highest level the rules the rules disappear. And the last game I ran which was uh Inspired by Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea mm-hmm. stories, although it wasn't set in Earthsea, it was set in somewhere that was a bit like Earthsea because you know, why would you take somebody else's idea wholesale when you could customize it? You know, this is, the, this is what I'm right. talking about. Right. But the uh, the rules I created for that were basically a very highly stripped down um, adaptation of, of GERPS. So, GERPS has, as people may know, two chunky hardbacks, It's famously very, very detailed rule system, hundreds of skills. Um, and I just boiled it down to, oh, I'm going to change the attributes. I'm going to change the skills. We're only going to have about 10 skills. And the whole thing can be written on uh, you know, two sides of paper. Um, but we're going to keep the the roll three dice and aim low mechanic, because I like that. And that, um, that worked really well. It worked really, really well. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm hoping that the rules tend to disappear. I have to say, I don't pay too much attention to economics in games. That feels like too much like talking shop. I mean, it's interesting. There's um, there's a guy called uh, Edward Castronova who who wrote a really interesting book about uh, economies in virtual worlds. So he was interested in things like World of Warcraft, hmm. uh, and he's got this idea that you could study economics by manipulating different World of Warcraft servers, for example, and seeing. What happens if, like, one's got more magic items? Do you have a sort of inflation problem or how does it work? Um, but he's really, really, really interested in how these economies work. But for me, I, I tend to kind of wave that stuff away. I mean, it could be interesting. There there's probably is a really yeah. um, uh, really engaging backstory if you want to think about the economics. But I'm, I'm tending, I tend to think too much in terms of, uh, like, cool scenes and cool locations and cool bad guys.
1: Well, I recall the first time I played a game with famous uh, Wizards of the Coast designers, and I was expecting this sort of like, they're going to break everything down and give me this deep analysis and peel back the layers, and I'm going to really see how their brains work. And it was a bunch of fart jokes. (laughs) It was nothing at all. They were not turning on their design brains at all as we played this role-playing game. It was just you know just being did, silly being kid Did you find
2: that incredibly disappointing or incredibly reassuring?
1: It was actually both but but primarily disappointing cuz I thought I was going to really get to see how their brains worked. I mean I guess I did but um but I, <laughs> yeah, I I was expecting this sort of breakdown. But then at times I have played with designers where where they'll they'll quickly just imme- turn on that brain, do a mathematical analysis of a thing, judge it broken and just continue on, right? They'll be like, "Oh, yeah. that's only a blah 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 probability and this thing so yeah, no." doesn't work, but that's okay.
2: My preference is that the game is ultimately about immersing yourself in this imagined world. You're an imagined person in an imagined world interacting with other imagined people. And um, the rules are there to facilitate that. And you want the rules not to pull you out of that. That's my preference. I I understand there are other ways to play and that they're all valid. But um, one of my problems with the... um, like kind of new wave of narrative games is they they tend to have lots of rules about how the all the narrative beats and kind of how you and actually if the narrative beats are in the rules well you're not really imagining the narrative suddenly you're 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 role playing the um the writer's room of like <laughs> a, of a of a yes. TV miniseries. Right. Like, how, do we, how do we shape this story? Rather than being in the story, and and then only afterwards do you get to look back and say, well, this is what the story was. Uh, so my preference is not for that, that sort of game. I like the rules to be as simple as possible. But yeah, I mean, one no, of the great right. things is there's so many different ways to play this game and yeah. so many different ways to have fun. And I would not be, not be telling somebody else, like, that's the wrong way to do it. If it's working for you, even the fart jokes go for it
1: <laughs> yeah but it's true sometimes the narrative games do work so hard at enabling the narrative that they pull you out of it and there are a couple of games where where i i i struggle with the rules because of of that effect they have
2: yeah yeah
1: yeah well tim uh it has been wonderful to speak with you uh, can you tell us where we can find you to learn more about your books and your podcasts and everything you're up to?
2: Sure. Well, um, tell us there's this place called the internet. You may have heard what of is it. it. No. Um, it's kind of... Is it in it, the uh, sewers? It, it's complicated. Yeah. It's somewhere in the sewers. It's a very dangerous place. People often lose touch with reality there. Um, <laughs> so... The most important thing you need to know is how to spell my name, which is uh, Tim Harford. H-A-R-F-O-R-D. It's not Hartford, Connecticut. It's Harford. And so timharford.com. I'm Tim Harford on Twitter. And uh, the Cautionary Tales podcast is everywhere you could imagine getting your podcasts. If you want the show notes, they're on timharford.com. So that's where to find me.
1: Fantastic. Um, Yeah, no T in Harford. Very important.
2: So important. I always used to wonder why my father spelled his name out so often. And when people just started misspelling it at me, I, I realized, I mean, Teos, you, you don't have this problem because I'm sure nobody ever, ever, ever misspells your name.
1: <laughs> well, the thing is they don't forget it. And, and that's annoying because I meet somebody who has a name like Tim and three seconds later, I've forgotten their name, but they remember a Teos because it's so weird. And that's the the thing I deal with is lots of people that expect me to remember their name like they remember mine.
2: Yeah, and Sean is a name designed to be misspelled. So I think Uh, we're all bonding over this. Yes. yes.
0: (laughs) I try not to give people my name unless I have to. I've got an
1: idea for a role-playing game all around getting first names (laughs) or last names that are hard to deal with. All right.
2: That creative spark. You see, it's irrepressible. (laughs) We're already working with it. It's fantastic. (laughs)
0: All right, Sean, you want to take us out? I will take us out. Well, first of all, Teos, where can people find you on this strange internet that I've heard so much about?
1: If it really exists, which is debatable, I can be found at a thing called Twitter, uh, which I think is connected to Sigil. Uh, And I am at Alphastream on Twitter, and my website is
0: alphastream.org. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can follow the podcast on Twitter at mastering D and D. And speaking of Kickstarters, there's a new Kickstarter out that I am uh, involved in. If you go to Ghostfire gaming on Kickstarter, you can see that the monster grimoire is now live and, uh, check it out. If you need some horrific monsters, mastering dungeons is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of encoded designs. So Teos, uh, and Tim, thanks again for coming. And, Teos, what, what, what should we do now? Uh, let's go think about cautionary tales that we can tell all our friends. Oh, I was going to say let's kill mazes and monsters, but with <laughs> fire. Yes, please.
2: You can do both. Any good role player should be able to multitask. <laughs>